You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. Uh, and I hit record just as a bus goes past the window and we get bus noises, <laughs> but we can just talk about that. We don't have to, we don't have to do claps either. No, we don't, because uh, it's all in one audio file. How very exciting. How exciting indeed. It's the 9th of December, 2017. I'm Benjamin Riley. And I'm Simon Copland. Welcome to Queers. Each episode, we talk our way through questions on a theme, and today we're looking back at 2017. How's your year been, Simon? Well, I feel like it's ending really well because we're recording our last episode together in person. I know, awkwardly looking each other in the face. Very lovingly looking into each other's eyes. <laughs> it's yep. actually really nice. So we're, we're I'm blushing. <laughs> we're in Ben's apartment, his very nice apartment in Sydney. It's too fancy. It's too fancy. It is a little bit too fancy. Yep, I know. But, it's, but it's still nice. I quite like it. It is nice. I can imagine it's very comfortable living here. Uh, it's very comfortable. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's kind of nice to be able to do this like face to face instead of over Skype. And I know. And so, so if you hear, um, you know, police sirens outside, that's just because we're next to a busy road, not because Simon's finally um, being arrested oh, for all the reasons. What a shame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Um, but yeah, no. Apart from that, it's been a this year's been a really good year for me. I started a PhD this year, which has been a really good decision for me. Um, so I'm doing my PhD at the ANU in sociology and I'm really loving it. It's been really nice. I spent like four years before this working from home and it's been so nice to have like an office and colleagues and people to go and talk to and people to work with. It's like all of that, you know, apart from the, you know, doing a PhD and enjoying the research process, all of that has been so nice for me and it's been really good for my health and my mental health and, you know, I feel like I'm making progress and doing a whole bunch of interesting stuff. So that's been really, really great. So I'm, I'm quite happy coming to the end of the year, although tired like super tired but sure yeah. looking forward to holidays but like pretty happy at the end of the year it's also been a, a very long day um simon and i have been hanging out and sort of planning things for the podcast for the next year so we're we're been in like podcast mode for mm. about like five hours now yeah yeah um so that's could be also why you're tired yeah and we'll see if that has an impact on the quality of today's episode <laughs> <laughs> it, of course it won't it'll be great how's your year been uh, it's been a very big year. I um, I moved to Sydney earlier in the year to come up here and, and move in with my partner. Um, so that's been a, a massive, massive change. Uh, I took a new a job to come up here. Um, then I left that job and then I <laughs> kind of didn't work for a little while and, and did other things. And now I'm doing other work. And so it's been uh, work-wise a bit kind of all over the place, but, but good uh, in that I, I feel like I'm... Yeah, just having a bit of a rethink about the kinds of work that I enjoy and the kinds of things I like doing. Um, Maybe that's been similar for both of us then, because I feel like that's sure. that's how what I did. I sort of did mine right at the start of the year. Yours, you're doing yours throughout, or at now? I don't yeah, know. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, the sort of for me going into the PhD was definitely a rethink of the of the approach to my work, and you know, it's been really positive to be able to do that kind of thinking. And yeah, totally. I think that like opportunities to just check in on kind of where you're at and do that yep. sort of thing are super, super valuable. Rather than just chugging along all the way. And Oh, definitely. You don't want to like, I feel like it's easy to just sort of wake up one day and go, shit, what have I been doing for the last like five years? Yep. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been nice to sort of spend a bit of conscious energy on, on rethinking some of that stuff. Um, so yeah, like a, a, a big year, but positive, I think. That's good. That's mm. good. I mean, a, a move is always a tough thing and yeah. if it's been positive, that's a good thing. Mm, yeah, I think so. Excellent. 
Uh, well, how about how about queer stuff? Let's let's talk about that. It's been. Um, I feel like we got to the end of last year, and there were a whole heap of really particular and significant events that had happened. We talked about the the shooting at Pulse. We talked about all the safe school stuff that had happened. Um, there was marriage equality stuff happening then, which obviously has been ongoing this year. But when you and I were talking before recording, trying to brainstorm a bit of a list of things, it's so hard to go past the Postal Survey. Yeah, I mean, the Postal Survey is, at least in Australia, the big queer event of the year or the big gay event or whatever you want to call it. And I think, for me, it's most significant because of the existence of the survey. I think it's far more significant because of that than if it had just been a parliamentary vote on same-sex marriage. And we had the parliamentary vote a few days ago from when, when recording this, and that felt nowhere near as momentous for me as the time a month ago when they announced the survey results. And I think that that shaped things in a very particular way. The public engagement and the public involvement and the requirement of a public campaign shaped things. And also then the big victory that came from that, I think, was very important, not just because it created you know the situation now where marriage equality has passed, you know, marriage equality legislation has passed, but the situ- a situation in which I think there's a great affirmation in my perspective of having such a strong vote and the potential of momentum that can come from that into 2007, in 2018 in Australia could be quite important um, depending on how, how it plays out over the, over this time. Mm, it's certainly going to be, I think, the next few months. It'll be interesting to see how that shakes out over the next few months. Mm. Um, you know, is what, the issue dead now or is it... Totally, totally. Because um, it's just kind of... <laughs> it's funny, we... Uh, when our alarm in the morning, my partner is is usually AM, um, the the current affairs show, yeah. and it just got to the point where every time it would be talking about either like same sex marriage or the dual citizenship stuff in the parliament, Jason would just like reach over and go, "No, I can't handle anymore," <laughs> and, and turn it off. So that's still been going on the last few days, understandably, because it's what it's literally only like. Like what day did it pass? Thursday? Thursday. It was two days yeah, ago two, yeah. from when we're recording on two days after that. Um, but yeah, I, I think when, despite my ambivalence about marriage as an issue, I certainly, and you know, we recorded a podcast on that, I had quite a strong emotional reaction to the, the results of the survey being announced for, I think, similar reasons. But I, I was barely, I was barely even paying attention on Thursday when, when, uh, marriage equality actually got through the House of Representatives, uh, sort of forgot that it was happening until I got a text from my little sister saying, like, she said literally, fuck yeah, was her <laughs> text. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah. What I actually felt actually on the day, a couple of days ago on Thursday when it passed, is that it actually made me feel a little bit ill in in a way. Oh. The not... Not that it had passed. That was a good thing. Even though, like you, I feel ambivalent about marriage. I feel somewhat negative about marriage but the sort of the celebrations in parliament made me feel a bit ill from Mm. from a whole bunch of people who had spent years and years and years delaying this issue and then feeling like they could take ownership over it when it wasn't theirs in my opinion and i think that's why the postal survey is so important because it gave ownership to people outside of parliament and i think that that's a very important sort of element of this whole process uh, in Australia that is different to processes in you know the United States or the United Kingdom, etc. And I think that it has a potential to make sure that the legislation and the victory is more enduring and that it has a potential for greater momentum on other issues because it was owned by the population. It wasn't owned by politicians. 
I guess. I mean, I guess there's sort of the flip side of that is that it could mean it could be a it could create more of a potential for fatigue around these issues in the public as a whole. Yeah, and I think the potential is uh, fatigue just in the both in the public but also in the media sphere in terms mm. of. I was just we were looking back. I was looking back at some of the stories, the major stories, and. Everything is marriage equality, really. You absolutely, know, in, absolutely. In the in space, so what happens in a week's time or in a month's time when when that has fallen off the agenda? Does the media turn to other issues, or do they sort of just does you know gay shit is done now? We can move on. We can talk about other stuff, mm. and and that's that's a that's a challenge. And I think that I think that's natural that there's going to be less coverage of queer issues because of that because you know this was a national debate uh, and it was a big high profile national debate so it was the front page of the stories that's going to be less likely to occur next year that might be a good thing that might be a bad thing um but you know there's there's going to be you know there'll be mixed blessings i guess because you'll probably have less high profile attack you know homophobic attacks compared to what we had this year but there'll be also it's going to be harder to put other issues on the agenda maybe or maybe there'll be momentum that will come from this that will put other issues on the agenda. I don't yes, know. I don't know either. I mean, and, and that's why I think the next few months will be so will be so critical. I mean, I I know that in terms of the the kind of activists and and lobbyists and things who are working on these issues, they'll be absolutely thinking about this and and keen to to push that momentum along. Uh, but you know, I've already seen things like, my God, I saw a I saw a tweet from um, Magda Zabanski and I feel because she's so beloved and she seems lovely and I feel bang anything bad about her but it, <laughs> the tweet on Friday the day after it had passed parliament it was something like it was amazing to wake up this morning for the first time as an equal citizen or something like yep, that yep. I'm just like oh yeah actually I saw something similar I'm in a Facebook group called um Proud to be a second-class citizen. This is a Facebook group I have long since abandoned. Yes, and I, yes, I, I, have, I know. I constantly tell Simon he's a, a masochist for, <laughs> for staying in it. To be fair, I don't actually engage with it anywhere near as much as I used to. Okay. But I did see a post from, from someone today that was like, what are we going to call this Facebook group now? Um, you know, oh, with no. the, like, you know, we're no longer second-class citizens. And, I, you know, I, I've, you know, questioned the, the name of the group anyway but like that sort of feeling like things are done or things are you know th- you know that i think that there will be people who will think that that things are you know that we have equality now and that's probably inevitable i think that that was always yeah. it's inevitable because of the way that the campaign was run for, and for so long it's been sort yes. of you know yeah. i remember i remember i went to one of the door knocking um, events during the campaign and uh, our local MP came uh, and he's, he sort of gave a little talk, you know, a rap, rap, you know, a rap, you know, getting people excited, talk before people went door knocking. And um, he said something like, this is like the civil rights issue of our generation. And I was like, it made me feel sick because that's just, I just think it's ridiculous, but it was very clearly in the, when I, once we've won this, we've just won this major civil rights victory. And, you know, there's sort of a, a feeling that that's going to be, you know, it done. You know, mm. equality is done, and that worries me quite deeply. And it's, um, it's certainly something that we've, we, you know, we've been talking, we've been predicting this for a long time. You know that 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 that's always been a risk. It it's, I've been surprised at how confronting it's been for me to actually see people say these things. Like I, I suppose I maybe naively thought that I don't know. Maybe I thought maybe I thought that wouldn't happen. Maybe I thought yeah, yeah. Would... There was just a, there was just a story we were telling ourselves or something. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. It was just us being. Hor- horrendously cynical. Yeah, but... or, or you know that 
part of me thinks that, you know, maybe that was just part of the messaging to, you know, there's a way to get it to win, you know, that this is so important and that, you know, that those people would move on. What I'm interested, what I think I'll be interested to see is what happens to the organising around, you know, groups like Australians for marriage, Australian marriage equality and folks like Just Equal and Equal Love and those kind of people who have, who are groups that are set up specifically mm. for marriage equality. Totally. What's going to happen to that money? What's going to happen to that? those people, those staff? Those the people, infrastructure. The infrastructure. Yeah. Is that going to... Because some of these groups, like, you know, Equal Love's been around for a long time. Uh, well, you know, in, in the scheme of things. And it's hard to imagine... Like, effort is one thing, but it's hard to imagine money not just drying up. I mean, there are kind of other things happening, like the things like the Victorian government announced a Pride Centre last uh, so this year, just this year gone. I feel like they announced it last year, but I can't remember. Oh, they did. My I'm my sure memory of like what is this year and what is last year feels a bit blurred. I know. Yeah. I feel like I, I feel like my year is split into like pre plebiscite and pre postal survey and post postal survey, and everything sure, is yes. still because it's just happened. Everything is still stuck in post postal yeah, survey. Yeah, no, totally. I know because we're saying when we were talking about how the postal survey has really dominated the year. That's re- I mean, it was it's really only the second yeah. six, second half of the year. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm st- I, like thinking about the first half of the year. I'm like, what was happening? I don't know. Um, but but I mean, there, there, yeah, I suppose I, I, I make the point to say that there is money flowing into some mm. stuff still. And there are people organizing on other things. So one of the things that was really important for me this year was early in the year in February, a group of intersex activists from different organizations came together and released what was called the Darlington Statement, which was a, a very important, it was kind of like a policy document that was outlined a whole range of issues that uh, intersex people continue to face and sort of, I guess, policy demands. Uh, And I can see momentum growing on those issues, which I think is really important. And it's happening not just in Australia, but in internationally in particular around the forced sterilization and forced surgeries, particularly on intersex children. Uh, And if, if that is the kind of thing that can gain momentum now that there's a bit more space away from the marriage equality debate, I think that's very important. And that could be very, a very good thing, even if Mm. it's not to the same even if it doesn't get the same media coverage, it getting more coverage is going to be very important because yes. it's such an important issue. Yeah, totally. It's it's um, you know it's about like fundamental sort of bodily autonomy. Yeah, and I think that stuff. there's the, the potential uh, alternative view of... So there's the view of I think that there will be people who think equality's done, I can get married, I can make my... You know, we talked about this, The uh, we can, I can make my political statement by getting married now mm. and that's the politics that I engage in and that's a very sort of cynical negative view and I think those people will exist... It is just genuinely hard. This has been going on for so long, for over 10 years now, mm. that it is genuinely hard for me to imagine what mainstream LGBTIQ discourse in Australia would look like without marriage. I think for so many people, not just the way that this stuff is talked about in the media, but even the way that people sort of frame their engagement with queer issues on social media, for example, is so framed around the idea of like being hard done by or being oppressed on the basis of this one thing. What does a queerness that like, you know, forget critiques of like the term equality for a second, but what does it, what does a queerness that frames itself explicitly as equal even look like? Oh, it's such a good question. I have no idea. I Me really either. don't know. And, and I mean, that's going to be the interesting thing about 2018, I think. Well, it seems I mean, hard for me not to imagine that, that it's just going to kind of push into other area so you know there's there's always kind of stuff going on around like representation in media for example yep. representation in sport that'll all continue i think because it is such a kind of easy um they're such easy 
things to focus on. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other one, and this is something that I talked, uh, I spoke with Nick Hollis about in the interview um, that I did recently, was the blood equality stuff. I think that'll probably kind of pick up a bit because it's a similar sort of really straightforward or what appears to be a really straightforward issue about like people feeling excluded for something. It's another way that people can mark themselves as excluded. Yeah, I think that that's true. I think my fear is that what we'll end up with is a lot of discussion about hate speech and about the regulation of hate speech and mm. that and particularly following on from the postal survey debate in which there was a lot of homophobic vitriol that came and I think that there's a potential that the conversation will turn to speech as the area in which queer people are excluded or victimized or etc cetera, etc cetera, and that will become that sort of new we're unequal because of all of this hate speech that is occurring. Sure. I, I worry about that because I worry about, you know, asking the state to regulate speech on behalf of queer people. I just, that gives me terror. Um, and, I, and I don't think that's a good idea. Um, and I also don't think it's necessarily the most proactive way to deal with homophobia in that sort of, sort of victimized approach. I think there's some potentials to look at what happened in the, in the postal survey debate and sort of identify, you know, that, that homophobia is still out there clearly that we still live in a homophobic society to see what forms it takes to see the attacks that are coming you know particularly attacks on on issues of gender and issues of trans rights um, and to recognize that that's coming um, to shift that to a debate in hate speech worries me and instead of shifting that to a debate in how do we engage on the ground with tackling issues of homophobia and having debates about gender and sexuality they're expansive rather than constrictive Totally, totally. I mean, and that, you know, there are all sorts of reasons to be critical of those sorts of hate speech approaches. I mean, I feel like any any approach to, I don't know, quote-unquote rights or whatever you want to call it, that, that is, like, has a focus on sort of civil law and, and the, the need to litigate, essentially, to, to access those rights, inherently privileges um, the wealthy, privileges yep. people who can kind of access those systems, which is not most... People. And it often can lead to the wealthy attacking the non-wealthy using those systems. So you have a, a working class person who makes a bigoted comment and they they are the ones who become the victim of that, where if it's a, a rich person, they're able to use the legal system to get, to get sure. out of yeah. those processes. Yeah, yeah. And so it often ends up disadvantaging the poor, disadvantaging the marginal. And as a sort of community, I guess, or, you know, whatever, as a group who sort of consider, you know, considers themselves marginal, it would be very, dis- you know... Uh, um, upsetting to then end up using legal systems that end up doing, you know, just attacking different marginal groups. Totally, but not uh, not unusual. It's or would also not be yeah. unusual. Yeah, and I mean, and this kind of thing happens. All you've time. got that, you know, with for example, hate crime legislation that exists in the United States. You know, and if you look at the prison system in the United States, it targets the marginalised. Yes, and hate crime legislation sort of pushes. You know. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It makes that worse, uh, basically. And, you know, I worry about a focus on hate speech. And we definitely did see a discussion about hate speech during the postal survey and about the need for the regulation of speech during the survey. And I worry about that sort of coming into being a major focus of discussion in, in, in the next year. Mm. And I haven't seen a lot of really strong indications that that will happen yet. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know. I think it depends on the the fallout. I think this is what the potential of the fallout is. There's a you know for me I see I see there's two potentials of the fallout from the postal survey, and one is to sort of use the energy from the win as a positive you know momentum forward on on other issues. The other one that I could see that could definitely happen is to still see it as a as a time of 
great homophobia that we should be, you know, mm. that, that sort of harmed our community very, very deeply. And people clearly have that feeling, even though you and I probably don't to an extent. Um, and, th- and I'm not denying that feeling, um, but that, that, that get, then gets used as a way to say we need more protections for queer people in these to stop these sorts of harms of, of speech, for example, occurring. And there's two different sort of, ones a bit more. There's two different ways that that debate could go, you know, and two different ways we could be thinking about the postal survey as an event and how it has an impact mm. into and the next year. We're certainly already seeing, like I've seen, uh, like after the survey result came back and, and was a yes, there were still kind of articles and opinion pieces coming out saying it's great that it was a yes, but this wasn't worth it. Yeah. I definitely saw a lot of that kind of thing. And that's still happening now. Yes. Very much yeah. so, yeah. The other thing that I think has come up this year that has been interesting, outs- well, somewhat outside of the, the realms of of the marriage equality stuff, is that we are seeing what I hope are the beginnings of a public conversation about respectability politics when it comes to LGBTI issues, or at least like... As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Are you looking for a trusted property insurance partner to help your business grow and stay resilient? FM Global uses science, data, and research to help you make informed decisions. By working together, FM Global can help you grow your company with confidence and deliver the protection and expertise you need to thrive. We're also here to help you navigate the complex world of ESG. We'll work with you to identify and mitigate risks related to natural disasters and offer solutions that contribute to a more sustainable future. Let's prepare to prosper. The very, very kind of beginnings of, of what might be one. Uh, and the, the main way that that's kind of started has been around a an open letter of a petition rather calling for a, a more kind of tol- quote tolerant version of safe schools that would be less controversial. Uh, and this was put together by a former Fairfax journalist, Ben Grubb. Uh, a lot of high profile celebrities signed onto it. There was a massive backlash from the community afterwards. We talked about it on the podcast at the time and you know, a lot of people, a lot of queers sort of saying this is, yeah, I mean, essentially that you're throwing people under the bus by by calling for this. Uh, and that's, I mean, do you think that that had much of an impact beyond the event itself? I think it, I don't know, actually, because I'm, I'm looking at, at at thinking about who people, the, the kind of people who are reacting against this. And what's interesting to me is that some of the folks who reacted against this, you know, there was quite a big Twitter backlash. And I'm remembering thinking about this and there were folks from, you know, people like 
Sally Rugg, who's who was high profile in, in the Get Up campaign, or Jill Stark, etc., who who reacted against this, and I think reacted in very interesting sort of anti-respectability politics approach to, to it, which I think was great. And then they're the kind of people, however, I see engaging in respectability politics all the time, and so yes, it's really yeah. fascinating contradiction about this particular letter, which sort of called for a safe schools program that was, you know, an alternative to safe schools that was based on tolerance and that sort of, I think the use of term, the term tolerance was particularly sort of, it really made people feel sick and rightfully so. Uh, and I, what I would have liked and what I would maybe hope to like is to, to have that sort of broader debate about, well, how does this fit into a broader politics of respectability politics, mm, mm. you know, a, that broader issue and what does that mean when you transfer what happened here to a debate on marriage equality or a debate on rights or, uh, you know, or stuff in the media, et cetera, et cetera. Totally. I'm not sure that's happened. I hope it can happen. And this, you know, this highlighted the potential for it to happen, I think, and for that if we can have, that we can have those debates. And I think that was really a valuable element of this, but I don't think it went beyond this particular event. Yeah, no, you're probably right. I mean, I think like a lot of things, this was just such an extreme example of respectability politics that it, it was enough for it to kind of create a backlash. But even, yeah, the idea that this could like burst into the public consciousness in any way gives me some hope. Yeah, yeah. And I think that this was this this issue was um very particular in the sense that it, it didn't really have seem to have much coordination with the community or with with a lot of the leaders in the community within LGBTIQ community. We almost like saw the counter example of that during the postal survey which was that there was lots of respectability politics stuff going on through that through the the uh the fact that the advertising during the campaign was largely kind of straight families talking about why yep, this was yep. fine, um, that very sort of like safe people were sort of being put forward, that there were lots of complaints on social media about people potentially kind of harming the campaign if if they said anything that was kind and, of unacceptable. And ca- the that camp- did all happen and, and we didn't see the same kind of backlash. And I think you're probably right. I mean, that probably is because the response, like the, the yes campaign in the postal survey was a community campaign. I mean, like it was directed and and there were people who were kind of had a, an amount of control over that but they were also people who have been embedded in, in queer community politics in this country for, for many years you know and the best example of that is the first ad that came out from get up in the postal survey campaign uh which was a response to the no campaign and remember it was this ad uh, with the yeah, yeah, with yeah. the straight family and they were saying you know this was you know in the the no campaign they talked you know they talked about safe schools it was basically an anti-safe schools ad even though they didn't say it and in get up's response they said something like you know children don't learn their values from school they learn them from home and that's why we're te- you know telling our kids that we'll be voting yes in the postal survey and a lot of people criticize that for throwing safe schools under the bus effectively and it's fascinating to think about that in re- in reaction you know when you think about this event this event of this open letter because that was the exact argument people made that mm. there was throwing safe schools under the bus and it was throwing trans kids under the bus but when that occurred in the context of marriage equality the 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 backlash to it was a lot more muted mm. um, and yes. so i think that there's something i think maybe that's something also about the perception of the sort of the greater good of the need you know that marriage equality was such a big issue and we just we couldn't have those internal debates at that point of time because then we'd look like we're infighting when we just all should be looking towards the one goal of winning marriage equality i think you know while the postal survey and marriage equality generally and to a lesser extent safe schools has totally kind of dominated as queer politics in australia this year it would be remiss of us not to talk about some kind of worrying 
trends that have been happening internationally. We, earlier in the year, started to get reports out of Chechnya that there were um, potentially hundreds of gay men being detained. In concentration camps. In essentially concentration camps, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the the reports have been, uh, were initially kind of quite sketchy and, and... Evidence has continued to trickle out that that, that is going on. Yeah. Um, there's also been uh, a, a pretty kind of concerning trend towards homophobia in some parts of Indonesia, which is you know particularly given how close the country is to Australia, something that we should really be you know screaming and shouting about and and playing a sort of hopefully in some way being able to play a positive role there. Um, and in Indonesia in particular, we saw in the region of Aceh the public flogging of two gay men. Yes. Yeah. Uh, sort of earlier, about halfway through the year, I think it was, maybe a bit earlier than that. Uh, and the there was also there's also been raids of uh, sex on premise venues in parts of Indonesia. I, I can't that may have been occurring last year as well as this year, but but you know, very concerning events and and just a general, I think, rise in anti gay rhetoric from the leaders of the country, uh, that is having an impact on the ground, very clearly having an impact on the ground, and that's all very worrying. Yes. And you know, talking about now that marriage equality's been legislated, what that might open up space for I mean it will be like I'm always a little kind of wary as we've talked about before of of how queer communities in Australia engage with these sorts of issues overseas and it is kind of super complicated and we we should always be concerned about uh, like issues around homonationalism and issues around a kind of cultural imperialism in the ways that we talk about that stuff at the same time uh, trying to engage with it more in some way feels important to me and I think for me I I 100% agree and I think for me, what's really important is thinking about how we can support people who are on the ground in those countries and have active conversations with people on those on the ground in those countries, and particularly in Indonesia because it's so close to Australia. You know, how can we engage with activists on the ground and support them in what they're doing? And you know, if we're talking about money flooding out of marriage equality stuff, can we get some money flooding into these into those sorts of groups and so it's really important to be thinking about that because we can't just celebrate and be happy here when this stuff is happening there yes well i mean you know we can do both things, we can do ideally, both but, that's why we can't we can't yes. just celebrate yes, no, we can indeed. celebrate and be happy here but we've also got to think about what's happening to people around the world yes indeed so i mean the other international issue that i think is really interesting and one that sort of follows on from 2016 is what's been happening with the trump administration in the united states i, I know lots of people came in when he was elected, lots of people were very, very concerned about the impact he would have on LGBTIQ rights. I think maybe in many ways it hasn't been on those particular issues. You know, mm. I don't want to talk about the broader Trump agenda. It maybe has not been as terrible as people thought, but one big issue that was very important was um, his announcement that he would ban trans people from uh, being members of the military, uh, which he did again about halfway through the year. I think it was J- July, August around that time. That obviously... Uh, you know, I think for me what was... The worst part of that was the sort of reasoning he gave, and that was this sort of trans people cost far too much money to be part of the military. You know that it, the, totally. the, the, and this was like you know immediately shut down by people saying it's entirely nonsensical, it's false. You know, like yeah, and and it's and what was actually also very interesting about that was to see mem- members high up in the military reacting against that, and it was very clearly you know I don't know where it came from, but it was I feel like something that was pushed for from conservative parts of his party, but he had not engaged with the actual military or the people involved in the processes. That, sort of, that feels like a lot of Trump... I mean, Trump yeah. engagement on a lot of issues, but but on 
queer stuff particularly, like he hasn't really had a consistent line. There are times when he's sounded actually strangely positive yep, about yep. LGBTI issues. And then he's kind of done this and made a lot of people angry. So, I mean, it's hard. I mean, he seems kind of nuts, obviously. That's part of the problem. But he also... It's hard to pin him to an ideology on it. Mm-hmm. Which which is... I mean, I suppose in some ways it's better than, like, dealing with someone who seems really explicitly queerphobic. But in another sense, it's much harder to fight against that. Because it seems kind of random... It seems like, you know, he could just pull some anti-gay law out of his ass at any moment and we have no real idea why or... Or, or how to fight to, against it. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I think I agree with that. And, I, you know, and part of me goes, you know, I would much rather have someone like Trump than his vice president, Mark um, Pence, who is one of the most notorious anti-gay politicians. Totally, and has a, a history of really kind of screwing the yeah. community. And strangely enough, people like Ivanka Trump... I think, push against that agenda inside the White House, which is a really clearly a very interesting dynamic that exists in the United States at the moment where she is quite socially progressive and pushes against these um, pushes against these issues compared to someone like Mike Pence, who is extraordinarily conservative and obviously has a lot of influence. But that and goes to the weirdness of Trump's political history. Exactly, I mean, like yeah. he, he has he's had ties to the Democrats for years. Yeah, yeah, know? and he was you know pro choice and then anti choice. He was pro gay and then anti gay. It flip flops, and it makes it very difficult. This was the big issue that I think that occurred this year: the trans military ban. It was the big one. There's been it's going through court challenges, I believe, at the moment, and it hasn't really been implemented yet mm. and it's, there's a very good chance that it won't be implemented but it definitely had an impact at the time and it doesn't have the same kind of like sustained you know things like his attacks on uh on immigration in the united states and to just form um, a core part of who he is totally totally and and have just kind of been horrific and ongoing and obviously um like every everyone who's kind of caught by those queer or otherwise the something related that's not explicitly a queer issue but has really sort of dominated certainly the headlines over the past couple of months and I think the the minds of a lot of queers is the Me Too hashtag that has was a response initially to the allegations that came out against Harvey Weinstein of, of sexual assault and that, that led to this kind of big wave of, of, of allegations and, and stories kind of coming out uh, against a whole range of people in Hollywood and that's now kind of spilling over to Australia and spilling over into other spheres as well and it feels like this very long time coming you know revelations that surprise surprise men are awful and like sexually assault women all the time and get away with it and are protected by all sorts of power structures yeah i mean this is probably in many ways the big story of the year uh, and you know and totally, was, rec- yeah. was recognized by time magazine with the sort of uh them naming the silence breakers around this issue as the person of the year this year and i think it's really important and it's gonna be fascinating to me to see how this develops as the story matures in a way. So the Harvey Weinstein stuff, I you know, it's amazing to think about that when those story when that story first broke about how important it was now. You know, it, it was such an important story if you're looking back on it now. Uh, and the sort of cavalcade of things that have occurred since then. And it has had an impact in queer spaces as well. So we saw the allegations against Kevin Spacey, for example, which has seen this very interesting interaction between Sort of internalized homophobia that he sort of spoke about in his in his um, For sure. Well, he, his, his response to it was to come, come out, out, yeah, mm-hmm. and that that you know, and then d- discussions about the equivalence, I guess, between uh, sexual assault against men compared to sexual assault against women, and that's there's a whole range of debates there which we don't have time to get into now, and maybe in the future we might. But sure, you know, but but I, mean, it, I hope the kind of the key takeaway from that is is that 
you know, that this is a problem about men's violence. Absolutely, you know? um, yeah, absolutely. And that, and that it is kind of indiscriminate and that, like, women bear the brunt yes. of that, obviously. Yep. Uh, and, and we should never kind of lose sight of that, but that, you know, we also kind of can't, gay men in particular can't exempt ourselves from having to feel kind of culpable as a part of that, partly because as we saw and as we've talked about on the podcast before, gay men do... Uh, sexually and physically assault women yep. uh, and uh, each other. Yep, I hundred percent agree with that, and I think that's why this story is going to remain important going into the into the new year. Uh, is it's 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 sort of opened up a whole range of space to talk about this issue in a really important way, and to talk about not just individual acts of violence, but the systematic uh, violence against women in particular, but also against men in in a lot of gay spaces, for example, uh, and to be able to start to think about how we can challenge that. And I hope that we can get into continuing to discuss how we can challenge that and change those systems of violence so that these sorts of things aren't protected and covered up. And, you know, that, you know, in the Harvey Weinstein example, for example, there was a lot of discussion about how Hollywood covered it up for him and how it created this sort of, you know, this shield around him to allow him to continue to do so. And thinking about how we can, you know, have debates about breaking breaking down those shields is going to be very important to make sure that the momentum, I guess, from this Me Too uh, campaign continues on into the future and it's going to be an interesting one to watch mm, and within all of our communities absolutely we've had a comment from a listener on our Facebook page I thought it'd be worth discussing um, this was in relation to a story in late November where the equality campaign called FAIR announced that they'd be releasing a guide for LGBT fans going to the football World Cup in Russia next year the guide will warn LGBT fans from holding hands or displaying affection publicly while in Russia because it's of it, it potentially being dangerous to do so and in a country with anti-gay laws. And, and this opened, you know, again, the questions about whether we should even be hosting these sorts of big sporting events in countries with anti-gay laws such as Russia or whether we should be thinking about boycotting these sorts of events. It's going to be a huge sporting event next year and we'll probably once again put the spotlight onto the anti-gay laws that exist in Russia, just kind of like the Sochi Olympics did a number of yes, years ago. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we had this really great comment from Robbie. and It's a long comment, so I'm just going to try and summarise it and we'll do the best I can. And I think what Robbie really points out that they're, you know, probably something that I very strongly agree with, that there's no real clear-cut right or wrong in this, despite the, our capacity to polarise these sorts of debates. And what he says, you know, on the one hand these sporting events are sort of global equalizers that bring humans together and therefore can be used as a way to you know shine a spotlight on these issues and that that has a potential we could do that for the rush you know for the for the um the world cup for example but then he also says on the other hand do we really want to be giving money you know these sorts of events bring in heaps of money to these sorts of countries do we want to be giving money to an anti-gay country um, or a country with anti-gay legislation and how do we engage with that? And, you know, if we're going to travel to those countries, are we supporting, you know, that legislation sort of by proxy in doing so? And there's a real, obviously a real tension between these two potential outcomes. And I think the third outcome, you know, that, that we've sort of discussed in the past on the podcast is that if we boycott, it could actually reinforce the anti-gay sentiment in those countries because a lot of that anti-gay sentiment is based in anti-Western sentiment. And if Western countries are boycotting, you know, the Football World Cup because of anti-gay laws, does that actually reinforce the anti-Western sentiment which creates anti-gay sentiment in these countries? What are your thoughts on this, Ben? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I suppose I, I agree that it's complex, I suppose. We like complexity in this podcast. <laughs> totally. I mean, I guess, to me, the kind of potential downsides of sending a bunch of money to a country like Russia 
like are probably more nebulous and and hard to really sort of pin down than the downsides of boycotting and like ignoring the benefits that that engaging with this sort of stuff can bring so i suppose i'd fall down more on the side of you know do it and then just try to make the most of it than don't do it but uh that's by no means a kind of absolute stance on on my part i think it's absolutely a gray area yeah i mean i think what was during the sochi the sochi olympics which was really just almost directly after these laws were passed in russia mm. there was a lot of engagement from international lgbti groups about how to deal with the olympics and to sort of engage in this and and i did some writing and research around the time and i think that the basic agreement that they that sort of came together at the international level was not to boycott but to use it as an opportunity to to highlight the laws and to sort of campaign against the laws and then use it as an opportunity to support groups on the ground who are campaigning against the laws and that's what the groups on the ground asked for i suspect it will probably be the same for the World Cup, it's, you know, it's the same country. It's going to be those similar groups who are still fighting. And, you know, hopefully we can use the World Cup to highlight these laws again because they've sort of gone off the radar to an extent yeah, you know, compared yeah. to compared to when they were first released. But, you know, I think I'm still on the, you know, the idea that sort of boycotting would probably be a bad idea in the long run. Um, but it's still very blurry about what you can actually do during these sorts of events. If, like Robbie, you'd like to get in touch, you can do so in multiple ways. Uh, pretty much all of them on the internet. Yeah, so you can email us at queerspodcast at gmail.com or you can check us out on Facebook or Twitter at queerspodcast. Ben and I also have our personal social media. I'm on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer and on Twitter at Simon Copland. I am on Twitter at Ben C. Riley. You can also find episodes of the podcast on our website, queers.podomatic.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, where if you do so, you should review and rate us. Listener Trail Flicks left us a review writing, It's refreshing to listen to thoughtful and open conversations on gay-themed subject matter between two rational and well-read gay men. Extremely kind words. I'm worried about being called rational. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> just, just take the compliment. I'll take the compliment. I'll take the compliment. Um, so, thank you very much. Also, please tell a friend about the podcast. Uh, word of mouth is the best way for others to hear about the podcast, so we'd really, really appreciate it if you tell your friends and encourage them to listen to the show. Given it's our last episode of the year, uh, and it's the end of, of what's been a big year, we wanted to really say a, a, a massive thank you to everyone who's been listening to the podcast, who's been engaging with us on social media, who's given us feedback, who has uh, reviewed us, who's said lovely things. It's, it's really been fantastic to engage with you know, strangers all around the world on, on these sorts of on these sorts of questions. So thank you so much. We'll be taking a break over Christmas and the new year. Um, we hope that everybody has a lovely holiday and a lovely break. Um, and we'll be back around mid-January with some new episodes. We are also doing a, a special live event that we'll be putting out some more information about soon on our social media platforms. So keep an eye out for that. But it'll be in January as part of the Better Together conference in Melbourne, people might have heard about so just keep an eye out on facebook and twitter for more details um and as ben said earlier we have just spent this day today planning doing a lot of planning for the podcast uh, for stuff that's going to come in 2018 um and there's going to be a lot of exciting plans that we've been developing today so uh, we'll keep you posted on the as it happens over the next year thank you as always for listening enjoy your holidays if you get some over uh, christmas and new year and we will see you again in 2018 Happy New Year. Earbuds, Melbourne's podcast network. Earbudsnetwork.com.